Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me Eason and me Bex. And in this special episode, we are bringing you an interview with documentary filmmaker Chris Rodley, with whom we sat down recently for a chat all about the episode Once Upon a Time, which is one of his favourite episodes, not just of The Prisoner, but of television. (laughs) So if you haven't seen Chris's wonderful documentary In My Mind, we highly recommend it. It chronicles a series of interviews that Chris had with McGowan back in the early 80s when he was making an early documentary called Six Into One, and it's a fascinating look at the show and McGowan himself. Yeah, we strongly recommend you check out that documentary. And in the course of our chat about Once Upon a Time, uh, we should warn anyone who is watching The Prisoner for the first time along with our podcast, there are some major spoilers for events that take place in the final episode of The Prisoner, Fallout. So if you haven't yet watched the finale of The Prisoner, we strongly recommend that you come back and listen to this episode after Fallout. But that's enough from us. Let's get on with the interview. So we're delighted to be joined once again by Chris Rodley to talk about Once Upon a Time. Hi, Chris. Hi there. Why is Once Upon a Time your favourite episode of The Prisoner? Well, okay, I have to, I should say from from the get-go, I won't be swayed on this. I think of all the television I've seen and all the things I love, there is nothing better. I don't think there's an hour's worth or whatever it is, 54 minutes worth of television made by anybody that's as good as that. Um, now, exactly why, I, I mean, so there are a number of things. I think for me, it's that it's lean. It's what I love about it is it's, you know, it's a locked off black set, um, with a few props, uh, mostly three actors, one who obviously doesn't say much, D'Angelo. It's kind of lean and minimal and you can see everything there's you can see everything working and why it works and i think when you're when you decide to do something like that everything has got to be absolutely right everything every tiny thing so even little angelo standing in a playpen with that rattle you know every tiny detail becomes incredibly uh evocative because someone's thought about every tiny bit of it Plus, you know, then you've got like a whole life and how to represent that life. Just the thought of it, the seesaw, the, the way they've represented whole periods of um, someone's life so economically. And I just like the fact you can see it all. You can see everything. But, I mean, obviously, it's it has one glorious um, special effect, I think. And the special effect is the acting. That's it. I mean, I, I don't think any, it's not an original thought. I think it's, when you see that kind of uh, talent and that kind of ability, you know, unhindered by anything, unhindered by anything, just let it go. It's a terrifying, it's a terrifying, immersive kind of experience. And I think it is, it's about that acting. I think it's about those performances, both of them. Actually, I think McKern wins on performance. Uh, over Patrick, because, but, you know, that's, but I think because you can see, it, it, I think what people have said about it, you can see what's happening. You, what you're seeing is when act, two very professional actors kind of get so far into it, they, 
they've lost their kind of um, any other outside reference points. They become those characters. So I think, you know, if, if, if basically the plot is that number six has to break down number two, it does become Patrick McGowan has to break down Leo McKern. That's it. You can see Leo fighting for his life in that. And it's so uh, in, intense and uh, unique, I think. It's two guys. It's really two guys fighting. And I think it, it's kind of a bit like, it's another question that you put, uh, why is it, why can you watch it over and over again? The reason you can watch it over and over again is, to me, it's like being a tennis fan. I can watch over and over again a match, certain matches between like Borg and McEnroe or Nadal and Federer. You, you know the outcome, you know who wins. But actually just watching those two guys go at each other in that way, that everything, everything matters. Every move matters. Every shot matters. Every, and then who's winning? Who's got the upper hand? Oh, he's, oh God, he, I know, he's, he's now got the upper hand. And then inexplicably, it changes. Now he's losing. And, you know, it, it has the dynamic of a great, uh, sporting, match where it's two people to come second is to come last you know it's just two guys at it and I don't think I think when I saw it I'd never seen anything like that as a kid anyway but I've never really seen much like it since I mean I don't you know people make big deal about oh god yeah that movie Heat you know for first time De Niro and Pacino on the screen well you know whatever I mean it didn't it was all right it had none of that um and you can tell, you, you can tell that, that, that Patrick, it, you know, it's very, it's very personal for him, that episode. I mean, I know, you know, Arrival, you have, yes, it's his birth date and the time of his birth, it's fine. But that really is personal. It's, it's obviously personal in silly, de- not very important details, like, yes, the boxing, he did some boxing. Yes, his first job was as a clerk or whatever. You know, he, he references things he did in his life. That's not, Okay, you might do that, but it's it is really personal because it's it is it absolutely is him. It's what I came to come to understand as him when he told me on that beach in Santa Monica that he was beaten uh, at school virtually you know every day. It is Roman Catholic school. That's sort of lost, I think, that piece of footage. And you you can tell when you see Once Upon a Time that it's about someone who's got a kind of um, something in their DNA. That everything, you know, everything they meet in their life is a problem for them. Uh, and they take up an oppositional point of view. I mean, it's weird, as you think about it, that the village and its, um, it wasn't very sophisticated in breaking him down because all, all it did was make him more like he was because the, the techniques weren't actually, actually, when you look at it, it's a bit sort of lame. They're, you don't get round someone, you don't break someone down by, by, becoming the very thing they hate in their life, all kinds of authority, all kinds of systems. And they didn't really understand that, it would seem. But anyway, so he's kind of, um, it's, you know, you can feel it so personal. And there's a terrifying moment in it. Almost my favorite, I think when Leo McKern is going, you know, test, 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 you know, uh, alternate even numbers, test, two, four, and, you know, obviously he can't say six. Two, four, and he goes five, he does it three times, five, two, four, six, five, and then the last five that he screams with his eyes are kind of bulging out of his, that's really frightening. That, uh, uh, 
You won't often see a performance like that from anybody, actually. It's desperate. It's desperate. And so it's the intensity of it. It's the kind of two men fighting in a kind of minimal black set with no distractions. Nothing, no pretty pictures of Port Marion, nothing. But a bit at the beginning, but you know, but just the two of them, you know, and it's a it's a kind of it's not a macho thing, it's just it's uh you I can't, I can't you can't stop watching it. It's just the skill of it and the frightening. I mean Bernie Williams has talked about how he got really frightened, you know, and everyone was, you know. I think he says your Brendan J. Stafford said if you've got two minutes, come down on the set and have a look at this. What's happening? What is happening here? And poor Bernie is the kind of production manager, you know, when really worrying that um, it was going to get out of hand. You know, and he had to he had to worry. I mean, I think he says in that documentary, don't knock yourself out. I didn't want someone to die on set. You know, I'm really... He hadn't seen that before. I hadn't seen that before. And I've not really seen it since in that, that way. Just that kind of... And, you know, it's this... It's this it's, you would think that would be supremely un, unvisual, but uncinematic because it's very theatrical and it's kind of got lots of theatrical references, but it's supremely kind of cinematic, you know, that sort of rather silly attitude that because something's in one set and just two people, it can't be cinematic, you know. It's, it's beautifully kind of shot and all the kind of uh, Jack Lowen's kind of moves, everything is so... And I think maybe the, the the theatrical thing is good too. I mean, I think that's. I think if you're a fan of Samuel Beckett, you're going to love it. You just are going to love it. The minim, minimalist of it, the kind of minimalism of it, the kind of despair of it, and all, all those Shakespeare rather on their arms, Shakespearean references, Seven Edges of Man, or even I tend to think of kind of like Theatre of the Absurd, a bit like that, you know, kind of Inesco, and you know, where it's slightly odd. So all those things, I think. Um, for, just for me, you know, there are no distractions. I just love watching people doing their job really, really well. And acting, you know, it's like Marlon Brando in Last Tango in Paris. I don't understand how, I don't understand how you do that. I mean, it's got nothing to do with the, the sex and the sit as much in it, but you know, I don't understand how Brando would, I don't know how anyone can do that. And it's just magic. I mean, you know, it would make, Someone, I mean, last time a Tangman Paris is a bit like, is a bloke called Paul who's acting Marlon Brando. He's kind of completely inverted it. He's so far into it. He's sort of playing, he is that other person sort of being, acting his real, so it's all sort of mixed up and very strange and upsetting. I mean, I, I saw Last Time in Paris 27 times. I had to pay because it was pre-video days, you know. So I saw it 27 times at the cinema and paid for it because I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I think people thought I was just a fan of anal sex. It's not, not absolutely not the case. I just, and I've, I can tell you for all the cinemas that are paid to see that, the thing that really gets people, what drives people out of the cinema is when he sits with the corpse of his dead wife and berates her, you know. It's very, very uncomfortable. It's a bit like, it's, it's the same kind of thing, some kind of intensity and daring. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? I mean, you know. So I think it's, that's it. I, I think it's a, it's easily the best episode. I think it's Patrick's favorite episode too. I mean, that's what he he said, and I think it's all for all the same reasons. I think I didn't even notice it in the original documentary I made thirty five years ago when he says, you know, I got it out, and I I sort of missed that. I, I didn't miss it this, the second time around, but when he said he pretends he doesn't even know what he's talking about, he said, well, there's probably a word for it. <laughs>
I don't know what it is, but I got it out. And it's finally, you know, he was, that's it. it I, I, sometimes I think, I wonder if it's for me that the episode was the sixth one to be shot. It's even number six in the order. And I think that's also another thing about it is because you, can, you know that way, it was the sixth one to be shot, way, way. It was, God knows how much time between when it was shot and when it went out. So he did have an inkling. I mean, I think that's what's, that's what's good about it. He did have an inkling. I don't even, I don't even know how conscious it was of where it was going, but he was probably too smart to tell anyone about it because he would just be thought to have been, it would be ridiculous if he would say, well, it's a, you know, to go for, as Lou Griefer says, the kind, kind of schizophrenic answer. He might have been laughed, he might have been laughed offset, you know. I mean, he was sort of anyway, in a way, but, so I think probably he did have an instinct for what was going to happen. But, um, I think, so I think it's almost like blood sport. It's like seeing two people take, take each other apart. But in, in, you know, in, I think Leo does really, really well. Lovely. I mean, you know, also he, there is, it's really gone about it in a way, but he, a lot of it is to do with him because if you look at all the number twos, some of them are very two-dimensional. They don't really have much character. I think, you know, some of them are all right. I love Patrick Cargill, actually. I, I, I love Hammer and Triangle, which I think was probably regarded as the padding episode, but because there's the casting against type, someone who does like Brian Rick's farces, and then really so horrible. And his, that performance is amazing, but a lot of the number twos weren't very interesting. I mean, they were kind of, you know, they had a function. They were a bit schematic. But McKern, you know, right from the start, he wasn't really like any of the others. He was kind of, a, looked a bit bohemian. I think maybe the beard and the long hair. He was sort of naughty. He had a sense of humour. He um, he had so many kind of facets. He's kind of much more rounded than a lot of the other number two. He's easily the best. I, I, you know, I don't think, I think that's evident. But also because he's, he's, Self-sacrificing. I think what's kind of interesting about him is that he, you know, he quite clearly says, um, one of us will die if you get him, you know, he, that's good. So he's self-sacrificing. A lot of the others are just neurotic and weird and are worried when that phone goes, oh my God, I'm in trouble. He genuinely has a kind of intensity about him, which is exactly like number six. He has that same intensity. It's all or nothing. So now we're at a situation, degree absolute, where it's all or nothing. I, you'll get him or you'll get me. Um, one of us is going to go. So he has a kind of commitment and he has a kind of, this kind of intensity, all or nothing thing about him, which is exactly like McGowan in number six. Um, he's funny. He's really funny. Um, so he has a kind of lovely character, which a lot of them don't. So I don't know how much of that is McKern. I don't, I don't know actually, um, because it was established quite early on. And I mean, right at the beginning of, um, of once upon a time, you know, there's a really telling moment when the chair, the rover's in the chair, which is a kind of glorious image, actually. You always think, oh, okay, that, that's how that fits. That's nice. But also because he's, so it's funny, but also he's saying, get rid of that thing. You know, he's actually telling, I'm assuming he's telling number one, you know, he fights back. So get that thing out of here. You know, I'm not, I'm not, get it out. So he's not this cowering character. He's kind of big. Um, and all those things. So he's, him and Patrick, him and number six are kind of the same. So I think that's what, it's very e e equally matched, I think. And there is a little moment, I was going to look at it actually before you came, there is a little moment 
when there's that die, when he dies and you hear die, 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 there's something very odd about that. And I, can't, I can't quite put my finger on it. I guess it's, so I'm still noticing stuff. You know, there's not, there's not much on the screen. How come he's still noticing stuff? But even just, because they never knew when an episode, you, it, it, there, there are call sheets which tell you when episodes were started and so not when they were actually finished, because of course they all kind of, some of them dragged on forever. I reckon some bits of that were done really, really, really late. And they might have just been sound things. So I've got a pet theory that there's, you hear die, 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 but Magoon's not saying it. He, it's, it's just his place, but you hear die, die, die. So it's a bit like num, you know, if, if you follow it through logically, it's a bit like number one thinking, well, let's get rid of number two, he's lost. So it's actually number one saying die, die, die. But it's Patrick's voice, so, you know, I don't know if that hints that he always knew, or by then he did know that, that six and one were the same. So you hear him saying, die, die. And when he throws his glass down, because they've made, he, he's done the one thing he never, ever did and never wanted to do, which was to kill someone. And he's responsible for that death. So it has all this kind of richness to it, I think, that some of them patently don't. And I think it's to do with the minimalism of, of all of it. And Leah McCann, I mean, that was a, that, I, you know, there's been a lot of um, talk about the nervous breakdown. The, the, that documentary I made actually kind of promotes the idea that, continues to promote the idea he had a nervous breakdown on that. Bernie Williams said he did, Patrick said he did, but Roger Goodman from... Uh, who founded Six and One? So well, he, uh, he talked to Kenneth Griffiths, and Kenneth Griffiths said they had the breakdown on Fallout. And actually, I, so I found that um, interview with uh, a tiny little interview with McKern, and what he's describing does sound more like Fallout than interestingly. But I think maybe in his mind it's all gotten collapsed. I think he he did have probably did have trouble on Once Upon a Time, but he somehow collapsed the torment of Fallout. So he talks, actually, it's quite funny because he, people have probably seen this. He said, when we first, when he called me, you're a funny little fucker, aren't you? And I thought, oh, it's going to be that sort of relationship, unfortunately. And that was said in a bar when we were drinking before we even started the series. So there was obviously some strange little thing going on there. And then later on, you know, he says he was almost impossible to work with, Patrick. A dreadful bully, always shouting and screaming and yelling about the place, hurrying up and saving money. That's what makes me think more of Fallout than, than Once Upon a Time, because I don't think they would have had those pressures then. I used to get very depressed, I remember. I used to lie in my dressing room mainly on the short times that we, we had off and worry and be depressed and get very silent. Certainly when one is shouted at, it doesn't inspire one to do anything except redraw into oneself. But it was great fun. <laughs> I must say, even though it was agony, you know, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, I, I think maybe the interview, I think looking at that interview, I may, it's possible that Lee was drunk when he actually did the interview. It sort of popped up at a bar, I'm not sure of it. But um, I, you know, it represents, I think what's really, actually what's really good about it is it, that's Patrick, that's quintessential Patrick, which is you work very hard, you push everyone to their limits because it's not worth doing unless you do that. So you, you, you better be good because I'm going to work you really, really hard. And so it's kind of, I mean, I could watch it on a loop, really. I, because like some tennis matches you can watch on a loop. Some things, you know.
some battles between two individuals who are pretty evenly matched. And it's going to be the matter of the right backhand at the right time. It'll just, you know, it'll be a tiny thing. It'll spin on a tiny thing. So it's, it's never, that's never not exciting, I don't think. That was a long answer. <laughs> Spanked up, you see, it's all banked up. So what do you think about the episode working as number six versus, um, against an individual number two versus every other episode, which is him versus, you know, the village and the events which yeah. are orchestrated by, by a number two at the behest of a number one, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... McGowan actually did say very casually in one interview, oh, you know, this whole business of, this whole business of he could have gotten out. And really, if you think about it, he could have gotten out. So, um, and that he's probably a kind of masochist. I mean, I think the ones that work really well are those ones. It's, it's like hammering to anvil where if it's true he could have gotten out and you suspect he could, he's, it's just about outwitting, you know, one per, it's about outwitting one person when he, you know, says to, to, um, Patrick Cargill, you're going to regret it, you know. I mean, he, and the whole episode is just about him breaking that person down. So I think there are occasions when he's just it got to be cleverer than the main guy. And those they I, they work really well for me. Those ones where he'll just pick on, you know. He doesn't want to leave. Actually, I don't think he wants to leave. I don't think it's about leaving. I think he just wants to play them at their own game and beat them at their own game. And I think at a certain point they decided it wasn't about him getting out. It was just about being, you know, like he always wanted for John Drake, just using your wits, you know, using your wits. And winning by being cleverer than, well, cleverer than anyone else. Also, there's a kind of weird, you know, there is that moment, it's funny, it's, I, I, I don't even try and think what, it, what might have been going on in Patrick's head, but there is that little, because so much of the dialogue is rhythmic, there's that thing when, you know, McCann says, I'll kill you. And then Patrick does that kind of rather St. Sebastian kind of thing, I'll die. And then he says, you're dead. I mean, it's, it's interesting. One of the, one member of the audience in that Canadian interview in, in 77 says, what's that about? And Patrick absolutely won't, doesn't answer the question. What does that mean? You're dead. Is that kind of, I mean, it might be unfair. It's probably unfair, not why, to actually focus down on a line like that, because I think it was just a rhythmic thing, you know, I'll kill you, I'll die, you're dead. Might be like, you know, all the other rhythmic discussion, um, dialogues they have in that. Scene. But, so it might, might be unwise to focus down on that. But if you did focus down on that, you, there's only one way to go with that, which is he is dead. You know, it is a kind of, that's, he's in a, He's just in purgatory, but it's a purgatory of his own making, you know. So that's a kind of interesting thing. Why is McCann say to him, you're dead? Because he's dead, I think. He's in a kind of, um, it's the dog. <laughs> it's like he's, um, it's naughty, but it kind of, it, it, it suggests some things. My, my dog panting away. Um, I quite like that idea, uh, that, it's a kind of purgatory of our own making. You're in a kind of other kind of world, really. It's, it's, and when you sort of think about how all the fallout, how it's under the ground, you know, I can't, it could just be innocent, but why, why, why wouldn't that be like hell? It's the, it's underground, and why wouldn't heaven be like Port Marion above, you know, and he, but he's trapped in this kind of thing. 
purgatory. It's all, it's, it's all over. He's, he's dead. We're going to have to stop, Georgie. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> it's also kind of interesting, you know, I, I'm, I'm really annoyed. They cut away from, uh, maybe per- purposefully, from McKern when he says you're dead. Because I know they did, because, you know, I was looking for even a, an extra frame when we were doing the, the latest documentary. But he, just look at his face, it comes out vindictively, like a kind of, you know, and then it goes, it, his face slightly changes, but then it's gone, you don't really get to... You know, there's no saving of that moment. But there, it, there's either that's just a vindictive thing. You're dead. You know, you're like you're kind of. You might as well be dead. Or it is. I know that you're dead. So I think I. I don't think hardly any of the other episodes have that kind of. I think Dance of the Dead has some bits of that, obviously. But um, it has some. It, it has all the seeds of it. You know, all the all. And also, you know, there isn't that great thing. If it, it was the sixth to be shot, it's. It was maybe, at one point, maybe it was going to be the episode that finished the first series of 13. So the way it shifts around makes it interesting as well. But, you know, if it were, if it were going to be the end of the first series, I don't know where they would have, what the second series would have been. Because then I'm going to take you to them. So then I don't know what's left, really. Um, like, you know, once you kill Laura, once you say who killed Laura Palmer, what, what are you going to do? You don't want to say it, do you? But then someone makes you say it and then... It's all plaid shirts and everything goes down the drain. <laughs> so I, uh, it, it, it's the way it moved around as well as whether it's going to finish a first series, whether it's going to be... And because it was shot so early on and it clearly indicates to me that he pretty much didn't know what he was doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure he did. I mean, especially because the sort of mobile trailer becomes such a critical aspect of fallout as well yeah, yeah yeah i mean all these things do seem to be inbuilt in in such an early conceived episode in the series yeah very i mean yeah. and because it is such a great script yeah. i mean it's so daring i mean i i know it's archibald schwartz and he wasn't confident about it and he went down on the stage first without his name on it but it's really it is really abstract it's a lovely thing i mean to see that written down was probably quite shocking you know Nothing to do, you know, it's, it's just numbers. All that number stuff is so great. I love, I love all that. Do you think McGlynn was trying to elevate the show to a, to a completely you know, different realm by presenting this overtly theatrical episode? Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely yeah. sure. I mean, I think, I, I, you know, what's so great about him, I've probably said it before, but, you know, you could... You probably could write a, a book on British theatre and he would be a kind of little bit of a footnote. You could certainly write one on British cinema and he'd hardly be there. Can't write one about British television without him having his own. You know, the fact that I think he... I, I know there are some moral pro, I mean, pro, problems of being approved and blah, blah, blah. But on the whole, you know, who thought... Who's, who had that amount of ambition for television? I mean, I know the BBC traditionally, but that, I mean, that was his palette, that was his destiny. And I think he really thought, I can bring all this stuff. Because what have we got? We've got something that's beamed into everyone's home. Okay, so I'm not even going to kiss a girl because I think that's wrong to be beamed into, you know, but I'm, I, it's a powerful tool. It's, it's, it, 
you know, millions of people watch it, let's have some ambition for it. So let's drag in, you know, theater of the absurd and Shakespeare and Beckett and I, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, to telly and mix it up. It's the mix up, you know, it's so exciting. It's not, you know, I can't think maybe Jonathan Miller with Alice in Wonderland. I can't, I don't remember much as a kid that, you know, it was play for today, but there, you know, there was nothing quite like that, mm. that, that had that, um, uh, um, ambition. I think you, you know. So I think that's what we have to thank him for, is for, for having, to, for just thinking, what can we do with this? Because it's important. At a time when people didn't think it was important, actually they didn't think it was important. You know, I know I definitely have mentioned before, but that idiot Orson Welles is, oh well, you know, he could have been a great actor, but he was, he was kind of, you know, grabbed by television as if that was a bad thing. You know, that even, he said that 1969, you know, you talk about snobbishness. I mean, I, you know, it's very strange that someone as smart as well should have such little regard for something like Italian. But it's terrible. It's not, see, I think Patrick really thought it was life changing. He could change, it could make a difference, you know. I think he really did think it could make a difference. And in a way that, you know, I, I can't, I, I can't think of much. Certainly not in that context, anyway. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think that Steve Forrest and the Baron is going to make a difference. I mean, none of these are manual suitcase, manner here and there. You know, and I think the tragedy, not the tragedy, the weird thing is that there was no follow-through. I mean, there were some bits of kind of eccentric television, like Randall and Hopkirk, one of them's dead. The Champions, there were a few odd little things, but I thought as a kid when I saw that, oh, now, you know, this is a gear change, so I'm going to be able to turn on next week and there's going to be, you know, someone just up the ante, but it was business as usual. That was what was truly weird about it. I mean, who gives a shit about the persuaders? Sorry, I don't. I, I really don't. <laughs> Love the music, but, you know, I mean, it just went back as if it had never happened. So, as if it had been a failure. I mean, I guess it was kind of, you know, in some ways. And then Patrick got all kind of messianic and thought, you know, ran away and thought he was going to get crucified. Um, it, there wasn't really any follow through. There yeah. wasn't really. I mean, it's weird to think actually. I mean, Leo went, you know, I mean, he did Waiting for Godot what, in 77, you know, a bit later on. Fantastic. But he's going to be Rumpole, isn't he? I mean, he's just Rumpole. And I don't. Blame him for getting, I think he was pissed off about that. He didn't want, you know, that he's going to be, and that's what he is. If you read his Wikipedia entry, it's wrong, Paul. That's all right. Uh, you know, I don't think he was ever given, I mean, if you look at, if you look at actually the other thing, he did help. There's a bad film for you. I mean, he wasn't really, <laughs> what else did he do? Such a towering talent, actually. Thank God for the filming of that Beckett play. He's so brilliant, you know, you know it's brilliant. Max Wald can't, do anything about it. You know, Maxwell can't do anything. Yeah, I know why they would have cast him because it's you know Beckett's obsession with comedy, comedians and funny men. But it's Leo's hour that I mean, it's, poor Max has not a chance. Have you seen it recently? I mean, I watched it just because we were going to be doing this. Mm. It's fantastic. I mean, Leo is fantastic, isn't he? but he didn't really get much chance. So Patrick saw that, I think. And uh, took him apart, which probably was a bit, you know, painful. It's a shame, but you know, sometimes it's going to happen. I'm sure it was scarring. 
He didn't ever want to talk about it, hardly ever, I know that. I mean, I tried to get him in the first documentary, and I, said, well, I spoke to his wife, she said, no, forget it. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to talk about that. Weird, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you've got to recognize your best work. I thought that was kind of, well, I was annoyed, actually. But he didn't. Mm -hmm. Maybe he, he maybe he would have said some bad things about Magoon and you know he didn't really want to have to say that. But you're you're, you know I don't, I made a film about Sam Peckinpah and I, you know I've seen grown men cry in front of camera. Uh, what Sam did to them. And then you 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 look at how many movies they did with him and think, but you did nine films with him. So it was really horrible, right? It was that horrible. <laughs> it was so horrible, you went back again, and then they go, yeah. Well, because we know it's going to be great at the end. There's going to be a great product at the end of it. But, you know, terrible, terrible. Men crying, you know, still, about what you did to them, or what they had to do for the good of the movie. Do you think that Leo McKern felt that it was it was potentially as, as personal for him to remember making it as it was for probably you know, Magoo who put it. I mean it's it's known as a as a Magooan episode. Yeah. You know? But you know, it affected it affected Leo McKenna. Do you think he just didn't want to 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 look beyond the experience of making it? He wanted just to leave it as it was and say, you know, Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean I, I would God, if I'd if I'd achieved if I'd made anything, you know, even a fraction as good as that and however painful it would have been, that you'd want to talk about it, wouldn't you? I mean, you don't understand that. And actually, you know, you have a duty to talk about it, to kind of help so that people can understand how the hell you did it. How, you know, how people do things. I mean, I think I've spent 35 years trying to find out that from different people. How do you, how can, what do you do to, how do you achieve that? Tell, give us some, Secrets and tricks. Of course, me, people don't want to do that. But maybe there is no answer for how you do that thing. Maybe that's just to do with a black flag and a dwarf rattling. You know, and, 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 you know it, may, it might just be all too specific and ephemeral, and you know, something you can't repeat. But I think probably I don't really. You know, I think maybe McKern could repeat. You know, I mean, I think he, he's not a method actor. Mm. And Patrick isn't either. I mean, I think probably my guess is they despise it. You know, it's about a craft. It's about being able to do it. You know, and repeat and again and again and again. You know, not just the once. I think it was really about being able to very not American. You know, very not American. Can you imagine trying to direct Gene Hackman? I mean, that would be. It just happens once. If you don't get it, it's gone. <laughs> Once. <laughs> Whereas some people just do it again and again and again. You want that again? That's, I mean, I love that actually. It's very show off. I think because it's a show off that episode. It's, it's people showing off. It's so great. Look at this. You know, it's like mag it's sort of magic. Um, it, it's a show off. It might not have felt like that, but it looks like that now to me. There's a, an intensity that you feel when you're at a live theatre performance where you're you're physically in the room with things happening in front or, or around you and for me once upon a time is the closest a, a tv show has ever got to actually recreating that intensity yeah 
in a television show, even though it's not shot like a, a theatre production, it's shot like a film. Maybe yeah. that's why it, yeah. it works in that way, that you, you, you feel as intense as you would if that was a live performance happening in front of you. I mean, I think, I think probably the TV, horrible TV execs these days would call it immersive, wouldn't they? I mean, they'd say they're all after immersive, you know, immersive experiences. Um, it's like that. It really is like that. Yeah, absolutely like that. And I, I you know, that's, I, I don't even know, no one can tell you how that happens. No one involved in it can tell you how that happens, actually, not really. I mean, no one said anything. If you trawl through all the prisoner stuff, there'll be the prop guy complaining about how he couldn't find a ham and organ because they were big at that time, how he was losing his mind. You know, that's it's that kind of thing. Well, oh, we couldn't find a ham and organ, you know, after that Procol Harum hit, everyone was buying them. And that, you know, we had a problem with that. And you can tell you those bits, the bits that don't really matter, you know. I mean, I, I, but not what happened on that closed set. I mean, uh, uh, God, it would have been great to be there. With I, Jesus, <laughs> I mean, to watch that happening on te on telly. I mean, I think that's why you know, to me, I think it is the theatricality of it. Um, also, it's the mix-up. You know, there's so many nowadays. You know, everyone. You know, what is, what's the awful phrase? Mash-up. You know, it's a kind of everything's mixed up it's lovely it's a lovely time i mean even your gender you can you know, that didn't count for much anymore you know it's all kind of like and there's so many little i suppose it's, it has lots of my favorite things about it it has a lot of nursery rhymes in it you know and i think that glorious sequence where paul leo's up all night you know and he's singing those nursery rhymes like like they should be sung actually like horribly because the lyrics are really horrible Jack and Jill went up there. You know, it's a really horrible. You always think, you know, I hate, you know, I'd love nursery rhymes for that. I mean, I remember as a kid, they're, they're sinister, you know, but suddenly that's brought out, even the way he does it. So right from childhood, all these horrible uh, images and ideas <laughs> thrown at you, pretend, you know, it's just the way he sings it is so great. I mean, I don't know how, where that would come from, whether someone said, do you want to sing it like, you know, really horribly? Like, like the, the lyrics, you know, and I, there's a really lovely, um, quite a revealing thing. Wilfred Josephs, I don't really know anything about Wilfred Josephs, but he, he has a little interview with him on YouTube, which is quite revealing, where he said he sat down with Patrick. I don't know what these people expect, by the way. I mean, uh, he said he sat down with him and he said, so, so Patrick, what, you know, what about, what, what kind of music? And he said, Patrick mentioned three things. He couldn't remember the third one, but he said the other two were uh, um, Little Boxes, which is that song, which was kind of, I think, not big at the time. It wasn't a big hit, but you know, it was around. And Beethoven's you know, choral symphony. And so Wilfred Joseph, I don't have much time for Wilfred. I mean, he's just like complaining, like, well, what was I supposed to do with that? How ridiculous. But I'm thinking that's, that's your job, isn't it? Someone said to you, I'm the guy, this is my series, I'd like you to produce some music, which is a mix of Beethoven's fit, whatever, the choral, the choral symphony, and little boxes, you know. <laughs> Off you go. So he's just like whining. Like, I would, and obviously it didn't work out that relationship, no surprise, but you know, that 
it's the combination of those things, something very kind of grand and the choral symphony rather kind of, you know, very grand and slow, and then a sort of silly song. I think Pete Seeger made it famous. I'm not sure. He didn't write it, a woman wrote it, and Pete Seeger made it famous. But, you know, because the song is about conformity. It's all little, it's, you know, it's obviously little boxes. It's about sort of urban sprawl and everyone living in their little world, middle class com- sort of conformity, everything being the same. So you, I, I would have thought you'd get that immediately, right? I mean, I don't know how you solve that musically, but the ambition of that, I mean, the madness of that, something very grand and stately, mixed with a sort of, rather kind of silly folk song, American folk song, which is actually rather sanctimonious and you know, a bit hateful in some ways. And they going, well, I don't, I don't know what to do. Well, okay, but that's, the, that's an exciting gig, isn't it? I mean, to rise to the occasion. I think that's the same thing. So, I think, so this is what we're going to do. You do it. I'm, I don't know how you're going to do it. It's not my job. I'm not the musician. But I can tell you what I'm hearing in my head. Or like poor Noreen Ackland, who I interviewed because she edited Peeping Tom as well, which I made a film about, documentary about, complaining about fallout, you know, well, okay, but the last thing when you're in with a, sitting with an editor and an editing was the last thing you want for them to be doing that sigh, you know, solve it. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Help me out. And Noreen's lovely, but she, obviously she was sort of found it very, very difficult. Being someone who was just shooting for the moon, you know, and sometimes you don't know. She complains about going backwards and forwards on the moviola and she's getting more and more kind of anxious. Well, no one said it was going to be easy. I mean, it's a surprising amount of people just complain about because they've been asked to do something special. I mean, I'd kill to be asked to do something special these days, something banal. Someone with some ambition, you know, about what we could do if we put our mind to it, but I'm, I can't do it all. And I know I'm a pig and I know I'm a bully and I know, you know I'm difficult, but it, so it's finding the right people around you. And mostly he did have the right people, but some, some of the things were, you know, d- difficult to achieve because no one mixed that stuff up. I think it's quite commonplace now, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, you get some, horrible TV, you know. I mean, very soon after that, you started to get those kind of mixes of things. So you get, you'd get Bonnie and Clyde with a, you know, you know, some bit of a happy hoedown. Well, Scruggs over the top of people getting, you know, you know, d- destroyed by bullets, you know. We got, the la- it became part of the language very quickly. Like in Fallout, you know, all you need is love of the shootout, you know, that became, I'd never seen anything like that. I did see it afterwards. But I don't think people kind of, you know, he, you, you could do a lot worse than having someone saying, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get the best out of you." Actually, if you do crack, this would be amazing. And there was just like some whiners. <laughs> Got no time for it. But, you know, it's a, you know, it's a. Just imagine, I, you know, I don't think about it very often. But if he hadn't run away, and just joined Peter Falk. <laughs> those not very interesting shows. What the hell? I know. What could he have done? I don't know. I mean, based on that, a, a lot. And Lou, I think Lou Gray would have. I suspect Lou Gray would have pretty much backed him in anything. So you know, it's a shame he didn't. I don't know why it didn't happen.
So what real waste actually, I think. Terrible waste. Playing silly villains, you know. Turning up in scanners. I mean <laughs> No, that's a, it's good. He's good in it, but he didn't like it, of course, because it, you know, it, it was terrible. It's, it's a sort of morally bankrupt horror movie, which I'm just doing for the money. But he was, he was really good in it. But I mean, he, you know, he didn't, like, the more you think about it, we deserved more of that as con consumers, you know, just as uh, consumers, that's all. I'd like to have seen more of that. It's okay 50 years later still talking about that, but why wasn't there more of it? Do you think if the show had continued, he would have made more avant-garde episodes of The Prisoner, or you know, or he'd actually gone on to make a completely new show that would have changed things again. I don't know because it's all you know. I, I I've never quite believed him when he said I, it was only supposed to be seven, and so I don't know. You know, you can't really trust him. I I, I think I don't buy that seven idea. Um, so I don't know what he would have done with it. I think it it, it wasn't going to stretch very far. Hmm. It definitely wasn't going to stretch very far. I think you would, you might. I mean, I heard a rumor at one time that after that there was some talk of Angelo and Alexis Canner going yeah. off into the world, you know, and doing stuff. I probably wouldn't have watched that. I, I'm not sure. Alexis Canner's very annoying. Um, so you'd have to have done something with it, you know. I guess. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure what. This was, you know, I, I just think he's, he should have done more writing and directing for television, whatever mm. it was. I would have liked to have seen him not have to do something which had an echo of a secret agent about it, you mm. know, something else. Because, you know, that was, I think that that's the only way you could get the work done. But, you know, if you could have done something that wasn't, which really was a fresh start. I don't know. I mean, what was, you know, he's such a tormented guy. I don't know what he would have ever done. You know, he was in purgatory himself all the time. All the time. When you, when you make such terrible demands on yourself as a human being, you know, and when you, your standards are so high for your own behavior and your own, you know, it's a torment. I think, I mean, I, I think Catherine McGowan said he did kind of chill out a bit later on. Not noticeably that much, but, <laughs> you know, that he did relax a bit. But it's that, you know, it's like that drum solo, whatever that jazz movie, that, you know, it's like, that's him really. It's just the tor torment of it. I don't, maybe I'm, you know, that's what he brings. That's why that, that's why Fallout makes perfect sense to me. You know, if you, you know that you are that bad as well as that good. And that's, that's the terrible thing about it. You, know, you are really bad and you are really good. And that's, you know, you could do it like Lynch and you could have doppelgangers or you could do it like him, you know. I mean, that's really heartfelt, which is why I don't really believe that he didn't know that sort of where it was going. Mm. His own disappointment with himself <laughs> and, you know, with his own impulses and his own, you know, problems, his own strict. His own codes. No one, just not, you can't, no one else can tell him what to do. He has, just has to tell himself. And his codes are really strict and impossible to live with. So it's, there's not, not, not anyone, God, I mean, you know, we didn't socialize hardly at all, but, how, you know, God, I don't know how much you could take of that, really being around it. Because it's so intense all the time, it never stops. 
So, but at least he got that down. That 15 minutes of once upon a time, he got that down. And even at the end, he's lost. You know, actually, he's lost. It's kind of, you know, Leo dies, but he's lost. He's the loser. He lost that because he, he killed someone. So he lost. He knows he's lost. S- screwed it. Leo just, you know, dies, but he's, he has to live on with his own problem that he did exactly what he spent an entire lifetime not doing. So he's definitely the loser. I don't know. That's why it's kind of, it's very, mel- it's very melancholic actually, I think, for me. It's not, it's not much fun, is it? I mean, I, I think, <laughs> you know what the Americans who do demand a certain amount, you know, what happens when at the end of every episode a guy doesn't get out? He doesn't get out again, and he doesn't get out again. How many times can you say, well, that didn't work? You know, they need to, uh, you know, he was never going anywhere. Weird. Who would you have liked to see play opposite McGowan, either in The Prisoner or in another uh, production? Is there anyone who you think would have been an interesting... Uh, God, I don't opposite? know. I really don't know. I mean, I, it, because the McGowan-McGowan thing is so strong, I can't yeah. really I can't really think that's all. I'm, I'm locked into that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I imagine he probably... I mean, in a weird way... I would quite like to see him as Richard Burton go at it. <laughs> I think that could be really messy. I mean, yeah. you know, that could be really messy, yeah. I think. They're both completely <laughs> Both terrible drinkers. I mean, can you imagine? Or Richard Harris. I don't know. I mean, I think he'd need someone... He probably works best with people who are like, you know... I mean, Leo is a terrible drinker, like Patrick. I mean, I, mean, I don't know, maybe... I mean, I, you know, I mean, someone who's got a lot of... I think Burton, actually, I think that would have been good. I think maybe they even, I wonder if they knew each other. Oh, actually, no, I remember I was, I went to some place with McGoon in LA and it was a kind of those silly pretend English places. It was on the corner of Sunset, just as it kind of dips down. And, um, I think it was called something like The Bull, The Bull. You know, it was one of those silly and you could get, you know, lots of kind of red meat in there and oysters and stuff. And actually, I'm thinking because Burton was in that night, and he was very, you know, he's looking him over there. I mean, that so, I think that could have been good for those two together. That would have been just nasty. Do you have a particularly favourite chunk of the episode where you're looking at all these transitions in the relationship between McKern and McGowan? Is there one particular section that you? That you oh, I think undoubtedly it's when he's, you know, he uh, he's he's the judge. Yeah. And, and McGowan seems, he, he plays it beautifully. It's sort of like he doesn't really know why he's there. What's he done? I didn't, you know, what have I done? I just was, and he's going speeding, you know, doing test, test, test. That thing when he tries to make him say six. Um, I love that because McGowan's like, what am I doing here? You know, it's a terrible, he doesn't understand why he's there and the judge is, you know. I love that that bit, and I actually I think when when you, you the your dead sequence when finally you know Leo's behind the bars mm. and he's saying you know you're, you're you know in my mind you're smart that kind of that kind of thing and he's obviously McCann um, can't believe he's saying six now and that's a lovely whole sequence when they sort of because mostly he he wins those things doesn't he it's kind of like you know trying to I think McKern trying to make him do something. Mostly he 
wins. But he doesn't win on the, in the exchange about you're dead. He loses that because that's mm. the trump card, you know. If if you know when he when he goes in for for six of the best, and he says, "Give me twelve, so I can remember that he that kind of psychology of you know if he wins because he you know, he he's telling you that the pain is useful to him. You know, he can use that pain. So you, you think threatening them with a caning is bad, but then. It, it's not bad because I can use that pain. Uh, and there are several exchanges like that where he kind of takes the rug away from you by saying, oh, well, I can, I can, I can accommodate that. That works for me. But he can't win the, I mean, what can someone threaten you with that's worse than death? You know, I'll kill you. I'll die. You're dead. I mean, so actually McKern has the kind of trump card there for me. It's kind of interesting. He, he's got the ultimate trump card. What's already happened? He just didn't notice. So I think that there are most, most all of the sequences, most all of them, I mean, the seesaw, there isn't a bad one in it. I, even then, when they're, when they're doing the bombs, you know, and when they're playing, because every part of that set is so ingenious. So pretty much every exchange is, is incredibly um, beautiful. It's either because of the sound, just the rhythmic sound, or, or the ideas, but they're, I, I, you know, they're all really, I can't think of anything lame actually. I can't think of anything. It's terrible. It's just concentrated right at the start. I think one thing that's that's striking about the episode is it moves away from a lot of the imagery that you see in, in the show usually in terms of the village and, and Port Marion, like you were saying. But when you're in that room, you're you're surrounded by um a series of props yeah. which they use and they integrate the scene. Yeah. But notably, what I wanted to bring up was uh, was the glasses. <laughs> well, my, my Achilles heel. <laughs> um, I mean, those. I don't even understand. What, I mean, I don't know why they were so fascinating. I think they look really good on the cone, and I don't really know where that where that comes from. That design, that sort of strange, like it's like a wood. What is it? It's like a wooden, they're like wooden. Yeah. They look like they're wooden. Yeah. And I've, oh, I, I, you know, just that little slit, I just thought, oh my God, I know that. And then when I saw them at the, um, at one of uh, Rick's uh, um, L Street bashes, you know, they were just sitting there. And I, you know, I, I did want to steal them. I would have, I would have stolen them, actually. I would have. I don't know, I didn't. There's no, I just wanted them. Very few things like that, actually. And I don't know what I thought. I put them on, and I—I have I, never taken a selfie in my life, but I was almost tempted. Just—I don't know what that's about. I have no idea what that's about. But there's something about this, that design. I don't know. I don't know if that's Jack's idea. Who knows? You know, who cares really? But it was just something so fright and horrible about those glasses. And uh, there's no those, there's no explaining any of that. I don't know why. Little Angelo, that rattle works for me. I don't know, you know, any of it. Um, all the little details. And I think as we were saying earlier, you know, it's a, it's a merchandiser's dream. <laughs> and why didn't they? Well, I suppose it wasn't really the thing then, but you know, even now you'd think, you could do it now, couldn't you? I, mean, I, I don't know. But those glasses, I do want those glasses. Who's ever got those glasses? My one, one of the first things I'm going to do when I win the lottery, which I will do, 
I'm convinced it's my destiny because I'm going to find out he's got this guy. I'm going to offer him such a stupid amount of money. <laughs> huge. I mean, huge to have them. And uh, he's going to feel dirty because <laughs> he's going to take it and I'm going to have them. Very few things like that, right? It's weird, isn't it? I mean, that's... I wonder who it is. Um, that's what I would do. It's what would be, that would definitely be one of the things I'd do. I mean, I, I think that's what's so great about it. You, know, you, you can't... I just want it to go on and on. I mean, it does in a way. Um, I mean, if I had the talent, I'd write something for... I'd write a one-hander for Catherine to do. Just against black, just like, you know, I don't know, like a really lean something. I don't even know what it is, but it would be something which would kind of be resonant and evocative of other other things. Um, because, you know, I know a, a sort of idea of it being in her DNA, but I might do that, but she probably wouldn't want to do it. I mean, why would you want, you know, she must be tired of it. Damn dad, you know, it goes on, on, on. Um, because I, 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 I'd like to see her do something like that, actually. I don't, I've not seen her any performances at first, but I think I would, I want to do a Patrick, like a Patrick Leo thing on her. I'd put her really through the mill. It'd be fun, actually. <laughs> see what happened. I mean, psych, something that's psychically damaging, you know. What are you going to do? <laughs> Just thinking what it would be. The When I saw her in Port Marion that, you know, for that, that weekend, I, it was weird. What's weird, actually? Because the place is so, you know, well, you know what it's like. It's just impossible to think of it in any other way. So to see her there, there's nothing like that, ever. I mean, North Bend, Snoqualmie, might, you might get a bit of a Lynchian frisson, but not like that. Nothing, nothing exists like that. But, which is kind of the strength and the weakness of it. You can't, that's why you just leave it alone. I mean, I'm hoping Ridley Scott is not going to do it. Mm. I'm glad no one did it in that awful, you know, you just can't just leave it alone. I, you know, it, it, and Fallout guaranteed that if Fallout went as crazy as it was, it wouldn't, it, obviously we wouldn't be talking about it. If it had turned out as straightforward, just none of this would be happening. I mean, when Catherine said in, in the interview that we did with Philip, he went for it, you know, and good for him. That's an understatement. I mean, <laughs> If, if, if it had been, you know, the daily, the Sunday mirror had a, had a trailer, I think I might have mentioned before that, that, oh, we find out what the ending is. He's being trained to be the next prime minister of, in, of England, you know, he, so they've put, it's his own people who run it, that run this place, and they've been, they're putting him really through the mill to see if he's the right guy to step up to the plate and be the next prime minister. I mean, it's that banal. You know, if it had been like that, who would have, I don't think people would have been happy with that either, actually. It's because it's so, you know, Mad, that guaranteed, that guaranteed it. The very thing that people didn't like is what guaranteed it, I think, for sure. Quite apart from the fact that what possible answer could there be anyway? I mean, I don't, you know, it's not, I think he did know what he was doing. I'm pretty sure he knew. Pretty much. And he just gathered people around him, like Alexis Cannon, who were, you know, who, I mean, Alexis had been, what, he'd been sacked from Zed Cars for being, you know, crazy or too method, whatever, you know. I mean, Alexis had done all kinds of crazy stuff, so he just managed to get people around him who were all thinking the same thing. What can we do with this form? You know, it's not... 
The only, the only problem for me with Fallout is that it's a bit legible, some of it, you know, in the way that's, that Once Upon a Time isn't. It's a bit... I don't like the hippie references. It, it kind of puts it in its too much in its time for me. The hippie character, um, the kind of almost crassness of all you need is love and the shootout. Some of it's just a bit legible and some of it's a bit obviously late 60s. It's not mysteri mysterious enough, actually, quite. So it, I think it, it's, it has many great moments, but it's not, it's not a piece. You know, obviously it couldn't be. It's just a bit, um, it's a bit too hip in a sort of bit of a slightly naff way. I don't know. You know, let's have a hippie. Let's have the Beatles. Let's. I don't really think. You know. It, it's not. It's not quite there. But what a magnificent thing, anyway. I mean, you know, really, really intrigued. So bad. And you know, there are certain images in that. You, I will never. I mean, the sight of him. Little Angela having to run so fast because of his little legs chasing that bus is so glorious. Just the two of them. I mean, it's sort of almost. I mean, it's, I find it incredibly emotional actually. I'm just tearing down across Westminster Bridge with little Angelo. It's such a great image. Or a long shot of him describing to the police that policeman what they've been through. And, you know, it's, it's um, some magnificent things. Beautiful things, you know. And the ending, I think it's, a, 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 it's pretty perfect, I think, really. And I don't know what anyone was expecting. I know, you know, I was very upset like everyone else, but, you know, it's only because you want an answer. But it's, you know, you were never going to get it. I mean, I, and actually, I don't know why people ever thought, you know, from the first episode, you know, 17 weeks prior to that, or however many, there was a break, wasn't it? 40 minutes into the first thing, a big balloon, you know, runs through the frame and kills someone. And that, what, so you think you're going to get, you know, that sort of tells you something. It's not, you can't really expect, what are you, what are you expecting then? That doesn't make sense, does it? It's, that's mad. So I think any expectations are, um, that it would be at all, could be at all normal. Uh, odd, I think, that's against the odds. It's perfectly logical, that end, I think. And it's got Leo in it as well. <laughs> who maybe did have another spectrum because he didn't know how to, on that one, because he didn't know how to act someone who was already dead. But it's, it's, it's perfect. That's why that, um, I think that book that Alex Cox wrote was so terrible, actually. All those sort of banal conclusions about rocket scientists and everything like that. <sighs> And expecting that something would reveal itself more if you just listed the order in which they were made. When when is filmmaking ever like that? Or TV making? It doesn't really tell you anything actually. When they were finished, might, but when it was shot doesn't really make any sense to me. That would tell you anything. So I I, I don't know what he was after in that book. I mean, I think it goes along great, and then there's that last chapter with all these really strange conclusions, which, which don't make any sense to me. It's odd. But it's, it's good. Someone's still, they're still writing books, right? So. Uh, in Once Upon a Time, do you think that there's something to be said about McGowan's view on psychoanalysis? Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, he, obviously, he's 
doesn't like any kind of any kind of authoritarian figure. And it's quite, I mean, psychoanalysis is quite, you've got to give yourself up to it, otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. You've got to say, I presume I've never done it. I had an NHS shrink for a while, which is, was just appalling. So I would think he would find anything like that bad. Because someone's going to tell him some stuff and someone's, you know. But, you know, he, he desperately needed it, didn't he? I mean, he sort of did it to himself, I think. I think he sort of did it to himself. And I think that little moment when he said, I don't know what you, you know, there's probably a word for it, but I got it out, was the recognition that you have to, you know, some people, uh, to growing degrees, have to get it out. So you've got to, you can't leave it all banked down. You've got to get it out. Because it might be of some help to somebody. Or at the very least, make some interesting drama. So I, I think probably he would... Uh, if he'd sat down with my guy, he would have lost his marbles within seconds. So I think he would probably kick against it, all that kind of stuff. But that's not to, but I think he recognizes it's, you know, it, that it's, it's not that it's not, uh, that it doesn't work or it's not a genuine tool. I just think he would have a problem with it, anyone else doing it other than him to him, himself. And also he might have been frightened, you know. I think probably he would have been I don't know if he I don't know if he ever had it, but it seems snipey, doesn't it? It seems slightly kind of snipey. He right he because poor Leo McCann is trying that kind of transference, whatever that what whatever that is, where you you know you have to gain someone's trust and all that kind of stuff. So he he do, he does beat that, he beats them at their own game. So I, I guess it's it's in the, a best of very he must have felt quite ambivalent about it, but he didn't he didn't he he had the necessity to do it. I mean it's 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 legitimate. What you see happening on screen is he must have done some reading. It's quite it's legitimate, right? That all those things really do exist. I mean those practices exist. And when the the danger of the tran you know for the, the patient and the doctor swapping places, well, so he did some reading. I presume. <laughs> Um, I mean, as a kid, I didn't know what the hell that meant. I mean, I thought it was an interesting idea, but I didn't know that it was any kind of, any real back, any real um, kind of science behind it, so to speak. But I think he probably, you know, would resist it. I think he would resist it. Because I think if he gave himself over to it, it would be so ugly. I mean, there would be so much stuff banked down there, wouldn't there? I mean, really, really, a lot. Ter you know, a terrible upbringing, kind of, you know, all, all that horrible kind of strict religious upbringing and being beaten at school and having a, even a, a, I don't know about his home life, but I think it was quite strict as well. So, he, you know, lo there's lots of unresolved things, lots of problems. I mean, the sexuality thing, you don't even want to go there with him. I mean, it's not, I was watching something the other day with the guy who wrote Chimes and Big Ben about how he wouldn't, he just couldn't kiss the actress, you know. Just couldn't do it, and he was surprised. He thought actors—it's their job, right? You, this is the script; you do it. And he was really surprised. So th that real neurotic—I don't know what—I don't even know what that is—but a real problem with kind of intimacy. I mean, that's not—that's not good because that's the root of so many things, you know. I mean, that's the root of virtually everything, right? I think probably. That's why most of those revolutions never work because we didn't get the sexual revolution right. You know, if we get that in place, then pretty much a lot of other things follow automatically. But if you just want to get women on the pill so you can screw them and not have a, a worry about it, that's not really a sexual revolution. That's just 
that's just not very good. So my generation in the 60s didn't have a first idea. Well, they did have an idea. It wasn't a very progressive one, as it turns out. They got it all, didn't get it wrong, they got it right for themselves, but not for anybody else. The men, you know. So it was a, it was a, I always thought, personally, if you got that bit right, then pretty much everything else falls into place. You know, if you can sort that bit out, then lots of other things sort of crumble away, don't they? And that's the very thing that seems to be very, you know, a problem with Patrick and that character. I mean, it's all very well going, you know, there's the Shakespearean reference about, you know, the seven ages of man, but the lover bit in that stage doesn't occur, doesn't occur. You don't get that, you don't get the love stuff, you know, you get the mewing, you know, you get some of the stages, you don't get the romantic mm. desire bit. It's just, that's, doesn't appear, I don't think, does it? Yeah, he, he, he goes Skips almost over. straight from, from graduating into being the soldier. and it's, Yeah, it's gone, it's missing. Yeah. It's totally missing. So I think maybe, you know, if there's a candidate for psychoanalysis, it would definitely be Patrick. So you'd understand why he might not, you know, he might find it a problem. But anyway, this is all a bit odd anyway, because he's just like a TV star. I mean, it, it, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's like Roger Moore, what's going on? Why are we having to... Why is this happening on our televisions? That's what's so amazing about it. What's going on? We don't have to worry about Simon Templar. <laughs> it's inappropriate, isn't it? That's what's so great about it. It's totally inappropriate. Um, and it, it's not, you know, and it's mainstream. It's, it is kind of mainstream entertainment from the biggest television star in the country. So that, that's the shock of it, I think, really. I can't think of anything like that, really. It's a, that's really, like, inappropriate. I think that's what people had a problem with. They, they don't, I don't, maybe they didn't want that. They don't want to know about Patrick McGuinn's problems, because they were his problems. They're, they're not, you know, you can see it. Maybe thought, well, oh, I like that lovely Roger Moore, you know. <laughs> Seems all right. Or Steve Barron, you know, I know. Much easier. Don't like it. See, I, I really gravitated towards that stuff, I think, so. There's quite a few Shakespeare plays, mostly comedies, including As You Like It, which is yeah. where The Seven Ages of Men comes yeah, from, yeah. where, in essence, uh, a, a group of characters who have some kind of problem in their, in their lives go into a magical place, usually the, the forest or an island or something, yeah. and, the, and the presence of magic and uh, uh, alters them in some way that over the course of this magical experience, they are able to fix the problems that they have in their life, which are mostly relationship problems. Yeah. And then when they come back to civilization again, everything is fine mm. and order gets restored and mm. yeah, that they can all live happily ever after. And in, in some ways it feels like this is sealing these people in this magical space and yet they, it can't get fixed, whatever these problems are can't get fixed, and no order gets restored when they leave. And in fact, only one of them does come back. Yeah. It, it, whatever this magic is that's meant to put everyone back so that they can be happy together can't no. work. No, 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 it's, it's, inc it's incredibly pessimistic, isn't it, if you look at it? When he goes back and the, you know, the door makes that noise and you realise that it's all sort of, you know, it's just a sort of horrible, endless cycle. It's going to go on and on and on. Then we're back when we have to. Now, now we're back with the opening credits again. But you're right. It's not. It's not. No one's fixed. I don't think he. You know. I think that's what he believed. 
I mean, I think the bit we use at the end of the documentary, which, which is that, just in sound with with um, Simon Bates, what the strange little thing. I mean, obviously Bates Bates is trying to keep it light-hearted, and then he drops a couple of real kind of bombshells. <laughs> so Simon's going, oh, so you haven't stopped? Oh, obviously you've not stopped thinking about it then, because you know, <laughs> as if it would go away, but it hasn't gone away. And then and suddenly he's talking about. Actually, I think I can't remember exactly what he said, but it's it's really quite you know it's really gloomy. It's about how you know it's about the after you know the state of your afterlife, and it depends on what kind of a prisoner you've been, what kind of a life you've led, what's going to happen. You know, there's no, there's not no a ray of light anywhere in it. Really, it's quite funny because Bates doesn't know what to do with that. You know? <laughs> but. And I think maybe that was part of the re- adverse reaction to it, as you say. You know, the, what, so why doesn't why 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 isn't anyone happy at the end of all of this? So he's not right. He's absolutely. He's just the same as when it began. So he's just the present blindly. You know, when it's sort of like it's no. It's not like exactly the Great Escape. It's kind of you know. It's sort of like. There isn't really anything. That's what's so honest about it. I think it's, that's good, I, you know. But I can't think of anyone, you know, I, I don't know where he got the nerve to do it. Why, what did he think he was doing? I think it's difficult because as you watch the series, you're, well, at the beginning of every episode, you see him being taken prisoner to yeah. this place. Yeah, yeah. And you believe that it's, it's an external force which is, um, removed him from his happy existence and taken him somewhere and he can't get out. And yet, when it ends, he's released back into where he was originally, but you realise that you never actually saw that world beforehand. No. And no. he is being returned to the same internal prison which which yeah. has always been there. So it hasn't really been about him escaping from the village and as much as him perpetually just moving from one prison to another. No, 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 sure. And, you know, the provocation of having kind of a funereal, you know, it's just, it's a great, it's a great provocation, I think. That's almost like collecting a body that's already dead, you know. And they keep appearing in the village, you know, every so often you see them kind of, like, they're the guys who, you know, go and pick, take, pick up the bodies, you know. He must have been so, um, sure so many things to actually put himself on the line for all that stuff. So sure. And actually, you know, it's it's maybe it's okay he never did anything else after that. You know, I mean, I've always said, if, you know, if you're Van Morrison and you do Astral Weeks, just give up. You know, don't 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 do all those other horrible albums. Don't do you know, apart from Veed and Fleece. You don't. You've kind of you've earned your place in Kitty Heaven. That's good enough. It's really good enough. Actually, so maybe that was. There were, maybe there was no more. That was it. That was the big statement. Maybe maybe there wasn't much left. I don't know. It's probably enough. I mean, I wish I hadn't seen him do little jokey things like turning up as the warden in Escape from Alcatraz. You know, <laughs> and stuff like that. You know, not not good. But you know, he had the chance to kind of lay lay that out when he was really riding high and had all the problems he had, and really lucky to have him. A team of, you know, such a great team of them as well to be able to do it, to, have, to be able to rely on all these people, to actually help him do it.
I can't see, I, you know, I don't care how bad, horrible it was to work with or not, you know, I really don't care. I mean, I remember, you know, when I, I mentioned earlier, I, I did an interview with Gordy Dawson, who was Sam Peckinpah's first AD, you know, this is a man, he's a, he's a big, macho man. He's one of those guys who puts a bar in his house. Yeah. <laughs> a bar. So shall we go to the bar? Yeah, it's the whole room. It's like a bar. There's a guy, you know, one of those guys who, who will, you know, then you ask him a few innocent questions and he's sort of crying. But good, that was when he was somebody. When he worked with that person, you know, who was, um, uh, mo you know, monstrous and they had to kickstart him every morning with some vitamin E shots and, you know, um, that, I, I presume he thought that was a privilege, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so it's not pleasant. I mean, he did describe some, I mean, I think the beginning, the beginning of Pat Gat and Billy the Kid where they're shooting the heads off chickens, you know, all the chickens are buried in it. So Gordy buries the chickens in the sand, but the weight of the sand and the heat of the sand, they're sort of dozing off. So, so you know, Sam says, well, you have to run camera, and he had to run along the line of chickens and squirt lighter fuel in their eyes to wake them up before, before that, you know. That's the kind of thing, you know. Not, and he's, in, in, he's horrified at what he did to get the, get the job done, you know. How many movies did you make with him? Good loads, didn't you? <laughs> oh yes, I'm sorry. Sort of. <laughs> and I think that really, you know, once upon a time, you could. I, I, I would have to admit, when I look at it, it, you can just taste the blood, you know, and it's very. That might not be very nice in some ways, but just watching those two, it's gladiatorial, you know. It's it's like it's, it's like a peek. You, know, you get to peek through a little slit and watch people really going at it, you know. And most of us don't you know, have like quite nice lives, you know, we don't have lives that where confrontation gets that bad, you know. I mean you can feel it, it's something. I I quite like Leo to have survived. <laughs> <laughs> but you all that you know, you can I, I, I even the script sometimes I don't you know when he says you you can do it all, you're a one man band boy, you know all that you know it's Patrick actually kind of writing about himself. You know, all or you know, that's a great exchange that you can't but you can't really do it, can you? So I, I, I think when that was written, I don't, you know, I can't imagine they would ever have thought it was going to turn out that way. And I wonder what little Angelo thought. I mean, you know, did anyone ever talk to Angelo? I suspect not. But he's the guy, you know, he's, he's the guy. He's just kind of sitting there watching this all mayhem up and around. I wonder what he would have thought. It's a shame. I don't even think Roger talked to little Angelo. I think there's, a, there's an interview which... McGowan gave, where he talks about how he didn't he go on holiday with with Angela. Oh, really? Well, and apparently wherever it was, Angela was a huge star, and it was a really interesting. I'd never come across him after, and I'd never come across yeah. him before. So I don't, I don't know where he came from. I, you know, actually, I just know some. There is this kind of. Um, Tradition, you know, there's it, it, Breaking Bad. They did the episode where there's just the two of them. You know, the worst episode actually they ever made. <laughs> Even Family Guy, you know, has to get 
Brian and Stewie locked in a bank vault. You know, so, they can, so there's this thing about the two handers. So it's, it's a kind of thing about, it's where you kind of earn your, your stars, right? You know, it's a kind of, lots of people, lots of productions do that kind of thing, where at a certain point we'll strip it all back, we'll just have the two people, the two main guys, you know. And they're always, actually the Breaking Bad one was really bad. The Stewie Brian one is magnificent. That's a, that's a magnificent show, that one. But it's the same kind of thing, you know, where it, it's almost like, you know, you can you prove that you can do it. We're, we're now good enough and we're established enough to, to risk. We'll just put those two people together. We'll put our two favorite characters together and let them thrash it out. I hadn't seen it before, once upon a time, that kind of thing where... You know, as you say, it's locations and it's all big and lots of stuff happening and suddenly uh, there is nothing. I think it was the first time I'd ever seen that, but it's become a thing now, right? That's mm. what we do. We always have that episode, then all that. Two people are just going to talk to each other. We were talking the other day when we were recording the episode about Living in Harmony. Right. About how although Living in Harmony itself isn't a, a gimmick episode, but it it's almost like a, a front runner to the ones that you have now where you know people do a musical episode or a black and white episode or yeah, yeah, episode sure. done that wants to and, yeah, yeah. and suddenly you, you have this episode that is just begins as a, a western movie without yeah. any explanation and for the vast majority of it is just yeah. a western and we were trying to think of any show that had done something that genre-breaking before yeah. and then only t- two episodes later you get this this yeah. sudden two-hander which yeah. again we were trying to think of a show that had any show that had done it before the prison did it i can't think but it's been done many times since but i mean i think you know i'm it's not for me to talk about living in harmony but i i didn't see any problem with that i thought what was um spectacular about that is once you establish a kind of thing of a guy resigning you just apply it to anything i think when he throws his star in everyone knows what's going on it's sort of in ingenious in that way i mean it doesn't i mean hartfordshire doesn't really you know <laughs> apart from that it's actually a really really good episode and it's quite nasty mm. actually it's very nasty i think the alexis cow i mean that's nasty i think yeah there's there's a lot more blood in that episode than in any any other um, which is, I think, it got quite heavily edited by some mm. TV stations mm. on its initial run because they didn't want to show something. Well, America didn't want it at all, did they? Because that's yeah. like a sacred genre. But, you know, it's, it's like, I, I don't, all the things, sometimes the things that people think are really bad, I think are good. Like, if, if, if your main guy says, well, I'm going to try my hand at, you know, going to Hollywood, I'm going to go and do that. Terrible movie, actually. Really boring. Um, so the, I think it's really ingenious that they'll just say, well, we'll put his brain in someone else's mm. body. I, I mean, I think that's just thinking on your feet, and mm. I'm impressed by it. I don't think that's terrible, any of it. You know, I, I think that's just being clever. I thought that was really, really clever. Mm. To do that, I, you know, I, I, I know I'm biased, but I mean, I think I like those things, how people deal with things that happen, you know. I mean, it's, it's a lot better than, oh, Oliver Reed's died, let's see if we can digitally make his face. You know, I mean, that's, <laughs> who, cares, who cares about that? But a kind of real thinking on your feet. And I think a lot of that was Tom. I would, I would guess a lot of it was Tom. I, I don't know. Um, just really being clever. I love that, actually. I think it's, 
and it all it all sort of works. It's, it's varying degrees. Actually, I think the episodes that work least well for me are probably the ones that Patrick liked the best. You know, the, the sort of rather sort of sixth form A level politics ones. You know, like you know, oh, you know what's that? What are, that? You know, like those voting one. What the hell is that one called? Oh, free, free for all. all. Free for all. Check. I don't know. They're so um, they're weirdly banal. I think actually. I don't think that's where the strength. I think he did like those. I mean, I think because they had good production value, because that's a lot of Port Marion and those things. So he, he probably didn't like. But that's slightly simplistic, I think, because it starts to feel a bit like you know Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger understood propaganda brilliantly. So when they were asked to make films, they knew if you make the Germans look stupid um, and your own side look really great, that doesn't work. A, because it's not true, but B, that's not the most sophisticated way to look at uh, propaganda. What you do is you make the Germans really smart and you make your own people look stupid. So that, you know, by the time you get to life and death of Colonel Blimp, you know, people are going, oh my God, you know, are we that foolish? So, you know, because art, you know, I, I think when propaganda, you know, art, art isn't about, can't have much to do with propaganda. It's got to be very clever. And I think, you know, I think those McGurn ones which are, too overtly about democracy and voting and the man, you know, are are not very good because they, they they're a bit they're slightly preachy. I don't you know I prefer the kind of you know Emmerich Pressburger version of, of how you get your message across. Mm. I mean, you can imagine someone saying, "God oh, Christ, we've got to get the the Americans into the war," and you come up with a matter of life and death. I mean, that's when it's really working. You know, <laughs> when you you're not it's so far from propaganda, but it's great propaganda because it's it's art, you know, it's the real thing. It's not so sort of dumb. I wish Ken Loach would get that. I mean, you know, if, you know, <laughs> let's look at it a different way. Don't keep doing that. He made a he made a potential, almost a really brilliant film called The Gamekeeper years ago for television for Granada. It was magnificent, except all the upper-class people were just like two-dimensional, stupid and irritating. And my experience of upper-class people is they're not, they're not like that, actually. It's actually not, they're not like that. So that's what doesn't really help your, it doesn't help the drama. And I think Patrick was a bit, was a bit tub-thumping sometimes, some of those episodes. And they're not my favourite ones, really. But, you know, only because he cared. But creatively, I think it was never, it was never better when you know, than when he did Once Upon a Time, as an episode which is him showing what he could do and not and not trying to promote a specific message or, or ethos about the show. I mean, no. this was him saying, I think, this is this is an aspect of the show which potentially is, is not being viewed as strongly as I would like. So let's distill the concept of the prisoner yeah. into this. It's, you know, it's number six versus the village as represented by yeah. by number two. You know, it's a very kind of mythical episode, it feels. You know, th th there is a lot happening in there, but it's played out in the most simple terms where it relies on the performances. It relies on, it relies on a concept, yes, but it's, it is, like you said, I mean, it's like watching something happening live on stage in front of you, people ripping each other apart. Yeah. But also because they're, they're so similar, those two guys. I mean, that's what's so great about it. I mean, poor, poor Leo, you know, when he, I think, you know, at some point in the show, I think he says, but I'm number two, you know, yeah. and it's kind of like, He's totally sympathetic, much more sympathetic actually yeah. than Patrick, I think, than the number six character, because they're so similar. Yeah. 
you know, they, they're both all or nothing guys. Yeah. And it's a, it's a really fine line. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, they are, that's what's so exciting. They, you know, McKern, the McKern character is so simple. Even though he's doing horrible things, you kind of, you know, I'm so sorry for him. I do. He's, you know, he's not a terrible guy, really. He just wants to get the job done. You know, just tell me this one thing. And you, oh, you're just annoying. Cause you tell me. Why don't you tell me? You know, why don't you just tell me? Don't, don't, you know, just tell me. Make my, help me out. <laughs> and you know, it's it's all. In some sense, it's almost so annoyingly. You know, he's well hard, okay. And you almost say, "I'll just tell him. Just tell me. You know, poor. You know, just tell him. He's not so bad. Just tell him. Why? 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 What? What? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always. I find myself mostly. You know, don't people just root for Leo? They don't root for Patrick, do they? In that. I think it's interesting. He's just annoying, like he often is. He just won't tell you. He's not going to be told, is he? He's not going to be told. He's not going to be, you know, I'm poor. You know, right from the beginning with the rover in the chair, it's like, oh God, you know, what a life. Having to deal with that. Just tell the guy. You know, he's nice, really. He's not, he's not really not the end of the He never was. Even for the first one, he never was, you know. That lovely banter about I want to be the first man on the moon. You know, all that, that, that kind of stuff, you know. And it, doesn't he say something, I, I recognize your voice? I mean, he does a rec- something early on, he recognizes that mm-hmm. this is the sky. And he sings your nursery rhymes. Was, I mean, I, you know, I, <laughs> such a great character. Shame really. Wow, oh, poor McKern. I can, I've been thinking a lot about him recently. So, he's such a, he, I watched, I've watched a lot just recently, not kind of in prep for this, but just out of interest. He, he would, would do, he did quite a lot of chat shows. He's really so great on these chat shows. He's such a, you know, delight. He's a, he's a lovely guy. Actually, actually, I just thought, this is not, not aware of anything, but Roger Goodman, the lovely Roger Goodman, by the way, I'm going to turn into his press agent. He's, he, um, when I was asking him about something, he's, he, he, so it's going to take me a sec. He went back, so he found, so he went, uh, he he's so lovely, Roger. He actually went back to some. Um, he, he found all his correspondence with Leo, who never came to a convention and never never wanted to um, contribute um, at all. But he did look at some letters. God, sorry. It's just this is this says it all to me. Where are we? He sent him some letters. He sent him one letter in on twenty third of June, nineteen seventy seven, in which he writes. The series was extremely hard work indeed, with little time to do what were sometimes quite complicated episodes. Then he concludes with the letter, I have a few private beliefs you may find discussable. Is, is there such a word? This, this is Leo. We are destroying the planet. There are too many people. <laughs> Equality, understanding and tolerance are only to be achieved by education, not legislation. Laws will not change the personal convictions and prejudices of anyone. I mean, that's that's a good guy, right? He's yeah. and when you see him on those chat shows, he's so, so lovely. So you know, I, I think he brought a lot to that character. Made him completely three dimensional and lovely, like like the way that none of the others ever did actually. Even the guy who is it, Parks? Is it Gordon Parks who played? Substitute number two twice, A, B, and C, and the general. Colin Gordon. Colin Gordon. Anyway, that, you know, there are, and none of them really sing out in a way. 
particularly. I mean, I, do, I mean, because they're either like Guy Dolman, which is a kind of received British spy boss type Ipcris file man with that lovely voice, um, or they're you know they're they're kind of ciphers, which is all right. That's mm. you know, it's fine. I think maybe Liam McCann's number two was I don't know where that came from, but he he, he if if you're gonna if if there's gonna be a character like that you'd hope it would be like Leo because you know that he's gonna be he'll be very funny. You know, have a good drink and have a really good laugh. But in that beginning, was saying, "Why do you care? Why do you care?" All that stuff. You know, it's very powerful, actually. I'm just rambling about. I'm, I'm just become a big fan because I've had to be thinking about it a lot. Just think, God, what a great guy. That's. But he's probably most of the reason why I love that episode. Well, not most, but a good part of it. And it is 15 minutes of the best television ever, ever, ever. That's a masterclass, isn't it? It's a masterclass. Imagine giving a director saying, well, you, "You've got no CGI, sorry. Um, you've got a room that's a black psych all the way around. You've got a couple of that. You know, do your worst, do your best. What would they do? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> can I have one CGI shot? No. What do you mean? You've got your special effect. You've got someone who can act. Yeah, you know. that's the, the that's your special effect. That's it. So how are you going to draw that out? You don't, you don't see it. You might see it in the theatre. I don't know. I don't even know if you see it in the theatre these days. No idea. You might. But see, the theatre, you're too far away. You know, I mean, I, although if it's really good, I saw, is it called Shadowlands? I'm ashamed to admit I cried at the theatre production, even though I was probably like 100 feet away. So I guess it can. You know. But you, you want to be like, once upon a time, you want to be close up, don't you? You want to be so far away from it. You want to, it, it does that thing for you. I don't know if you saw that that King Lear recently with Hopkins. Junk. You know, they didn't know what to do with it. How to shoot it, literally. <laughs> how to shoot it. Weird. It's a problem I found with quite a few of the big Shakespeare productions where they have one person in it who is so famous and that almost becomes yeah. the the thing about that production that everything else gets kind of becomes a bit kind of second, but they're not really paying attention to it. Mm. Oh, we've got this, everyone's just going to be paying attention to this one famous person that we've got in the role, and we're going to build everything else around it. Um, whereas the, the the very best productions, which are have been the complete ensemble pieces, yeah. where there is no element of the production that is not important. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering what Lou Gregg's, when, when he went to see that Clifford Odette's play or whatever it was, what he made of seeing. I mean, I can imagine what he saw. I think what he saw was something that was very physical. And, you know, someone who was owning that, whatever they call it, but was you know, possessing the stage just um, by moving in a way that looked like he was totally caged and couldn't wait to get off the stage. He never wants to be where he is, does he, actually? I mean, it's weird. That's the secret, the way he moves. He never, he's always trying to get out. I think he was always trying to get out of his own life, in a way. He was never happy where he was. And you could see it in his body. That's the great... He didn't even have to think about that. Just the way he moves. Just to be so unhappy in yourself. <laughs> Your own body is so terrible. Dead entertaining, though. <laughs> Thank you, Chris, for joining us to talk about... It was slightly rambling in places. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us. And I'm sure we'll speak again, but until then... Yes. Be seeing you. Be seeing you.
So thanks again to Chris for joining us. It was wonderful to chat to him all about Once Upon a Time. And thank you also for listening. And if you'd like to hear more from Chris, we interviewed him about his In My Mind documentary earlier in the Tally Ho podcast series. So if you look back through our previous episodes, you'll find our chat with him all about his uh, interest in The Prisoner and Patrick McGowan in a Tally Ho episode, I think from February this year. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us in the usual places on Twitter at TFCAA, on Facebook, there's a group for Time for Cakes Nail, or on our website, timeforcakesnail.com. Yes, and next time we'll be gearing up for the final episode of The Prisoner, Fallout. So tune in to the next Tally Ho podcast for that. But for now, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.